Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Christina Scharf, who's from King's College London, about gender, subjectivity and cultural work, the classical music profession. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Just to, to kind of kick off with, I, I sort of say this a lot when I'm interviewing, um, and, you know, I really mean it this time. This is a really great book. I really enjoyed reading it. I think it's, you know, kind of important in a lot of different ways. Um and it's great that we've got uh, the opportunity to talk about it. Um, there's so much going on in the book um, around, you know, kind of like interesting theoretical stuff, um, some, you know, brilliant empirical material, some really interesting stuff about um, places and, and cities. And I wonder just to kind of like clear the ground before we start talking about the book itself, if you could just say a bit about your kind of, I guess, kind of intellectual development and and the um, the set of ideas that led you to to writing the book. Yeah, thank you. That's a very good question. Um, because I have a background in gender studies, and my first book actually was about how young women think, talk, and feel about feminism. This was in the mid two thousands when feminism was a very dirty word, um, different from what it's like today. Um, and I was interested in exploring um, how young women felt about feminism, why they would or would not call themselves a feminist. Um, so this is where I started my academic career. But through that research, I became interested in uh, neoliberalism, um, not so much as an economic uh, arrangement. That's the way we often think about neoliberalism when we hear the term, but more as a kind of wider social cultural trend where individuals are more and more called upon to act as if they were an enterprise themselves. So to self-optimize, to work on themselves, to take responsibility for their lives um, and to plan meticulously. And um, through my work on feminism, I became interested in this entrepreneurial self, if you wanted to call it that. And then I became more and more familiar with uh, the growing body of work on what it's like to work in the cultural industries, what it's like to work precariously. At the same time, I was precariously employed in academia. Um, So all these different things came together. And this is how I became interested really in the field of cultural work. So what is it like to work in the cultural and creative industries? at times that are quite neoliberal, where there's a lot of emphasis on the individual um, and where there's also still quite strong gender inequalities. Um, So I kind of stuck to a lot of the issues that I've been interested in before, but I explored them in a very different field. Yeah, I'm really interested actually in, you know, you you can see the lineage of uh, particularly those discussions of uh, gender and neoliberalism in the book, but, but I'm really interested in kind of why classical music you know to, to an extent um there's a lot of interest in kind of like you know sort of if not pop music but maybe musical subcultures there's lots of work on the film industry uh, obviously new media is important so why did you go for uh you know the more kind of like refined uh more you know possibly kind of elite cultural yeah the high culture kind of yeah 
I mean, when I started thinking about the research, um, I thought that there would be work on the classical music profession. Um, I myself have been involved in this a bit, not professionally, but, you know, at a lay person's level. Um, and then I realized that there actually isn't that much work at all on it. Um, not from a sociological perspective. Like you said, there's been a lot of work on film, new media, subcultures. Um, if I wanted to be a bit provocative, I'd say cool and trendier industries. Um, but in our field, like cultural studies, sociology, gender studies, there hasn't been that much research on the classical music field. Um, and at the same time, in musicology too, or music departments, the research that tends to be conducted there um, has not been very critical. Of course, there are exceptions, and I do cite a lot of the existing research, critical research in my book. Um, but there really hadn't been that much research. So I thought, oh, wow, um, it's a very, uh, it's it's high culture, as you say, but uh, cl the classic music sector receives a lot of um, funding. Um, so it's worth exploring, I think, in terms of the issues I address in the book, such as inequalities, but also what it's like to work as a classical musician. It has a very high status, so I thought it would be important to address that gap. And I suppose the other thing that's quite quite interesting is the sense of, um, and I mean, we'll we'll talk about this probably in a bit more detail, but the sense of classical music kind of being above these things of, you know, like structural inequalities or, you know, questions of um, uh, class or, or ethnicity or gender. Some discourses, in, certainly in kind of popular discussions of classical music, seem to suggest that the genre is, you know, the kind of, uh, the music of the Enlightenment, the best that's been thought and said, and, and almost these kind of like base concerns about um, inequalities somehow shouldn't be shouldn't be in there. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's something that is often said um, that it's you know an art, and uh, that we shouldn't really uh, busy ourselves too much with those real world um, concerns <laughs> about inequalities. Um, and this was also sometimes said by the research participants. Um, yeah, and I mean, that, I found that fascinating the way the book actually kind of like really nails this. Um, uh, unfortunately kind of I guess mistaken view yeah 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 and also that it's somehow class-free you know that the art form itself is neutral so to speak or not at all imbued with existing power relationships and um as as uh sociologists or cultural studies scholars of course we know that um this pure so to speak art form doesn't exist as such um the way to kind of cut into um, both these kind of inequalities, but also, I guess, the kind of uh, the way that the individuals um, involved in the profession are kind of shaped or um, are perhaps, you know, structurally positioned is through the work of Michel Foucault. So um, I'm quite interested to hear a bit about why Foucault's thought was was kind of useful, perhaps, you know, how it kind of ties in with this sense of kind of entrepreneurialism, which is important to the, the later parts of the book. Yes. Yeah. Um, so as I've said before, I, I did already have a strong interest in neoliberalism and specifically the ways in which neoliberalism um, as 
um, just to say it again, as a broader cultural trend where the individual is called upon to act as if they were an entrepreneur. Um, particularly, I was interested in how that shapes our very selves, how that shapes how we feel, how we act, how we think. Um, so that's really expressed um, in my interest in subjectivity. That's why the word subjectivity is also in the title of the book. So I had this interest. And then what's really interesting is that um, before I conducted this research, already a lot of studies had shown that cultural workers, so people who work in the cultural and creative industries, be that film or music or theater um, or any other kind of um, sector, um, that they tend to be positioned as entrepreneurial subjects or as very entrepreneurial people in the sense that you have this image of the cultural worker often working in a trendy cafe in a trendy neighborhood in one of the trendy creative cities um, in this world um, and, and being freelance and designing, um, living their little life in their little mini self-enterprise and so on. Um, so we knew this. And at the same time, from the field of gender studies, we also knew that young women, um, so, you know, up until up to the age of 35 or 40 or so have been positioned as equally entrepreneurial in the sense that um, public discourse, media discourse has shown young women to now be able to go out and work, control reproduction, take advantage um, um, of their capacity to earn an income and so on and to really control their lives and also in this very self-responsible manner that maps onto this discourse of the self as an enterprise. So um, I wanted to then interview young women and cultural workers, so young female musicians, that, that's what the book focuses on mainly. And because they were twice positioned as entrepreneurial, so they were twice positioned as these kind of ideal entrepreneurial subjects or selves. And Michel Foucault's work came in really handy because A, he does talk about the link between neoliberalism more broadly and entrepreneurialism. So he says that the neoliberal self, the neoliberal person is an entrepreneurial self, an entrepreneurial subject. And through that, his work really allows you to get at the dimension of subjectivity. So to explore what it's like to be this entrepreneurial self. What is it like if you turn yourself into an enterprise? What does it feel like? Um, is it a happy endeavor or is it difficult? And that's really why I drew on Foucault. Obviously, the, the entrepreneurial subjects, the you know the the people that are tasked with being you know responsible for themselves, you know, as you say, kind of you know living their lives as as enterprises, don't confront the world as a kind of you know benign blank canvas uh, into which they can be entrepreneurial. The profession that they're trying to get by in is 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 marked by particular kind of uh, inequalities and it'd be really good to hear a, a kind of a, a sketch of what sort of inequalities there are in the um in the classical music profession um i should say the book uh has a really great comparison um partially between kind of german and british context but also more sort of notably on, on london and berlin um so one way of thinking about these inequalities might be to um to do some comparisons or, or indeed actually to think about what's similar in terms of inequalities um in classical in the two places Yes, um, I have to say, and I'm sure we're going to come back to this again later, but I have to say that um, I found more similarities uh, between um, 
know the German and, and British or Berlin and London context and differences. In terms of the inequalities, so what we find in the field of classical music, and that's again very similar to other industries in the cultural sector, um, is that there is underrepresentation of women and of people from a black and minority ethnic background and individuals who are from less advantaged economic backgrounds. And that's particularly interesting in relation to gender because women tend to be overrepresented um, in music education. Um, at school and in conservatoires, not across all instruments. So at conservatoires, women are still underrepresented in brass, for example, brass instruments, so that's trumpets um, and so on, trombone. Um, but then they tend to be underrepresented in the profession. So we have that. Um, and then if you look more closely, and that's equally important, we also have what in academia we call vertical and horizontal segregation. So vertical segregation means that you have um, people of specific groups um, in positions of power and authority. So if, for example, you look at teaching in the field of classical music, at school level you have lots of female teachers in the UK, around 70%. If I remember the number correctly. Then, however, once you look at who teaches at conservatoires, which is more prestigious, you have 30% female conservatoire teachers. And you find this um, across the industry. You have very few female conductors. I'm sure lots of people are broadly aware of this. If you ever attend classical music concerts, um, it took me, I think I was 30 the first time I saw a female conductor and I've been to lots of concerts before then. <laughs> Um, and and so this, this is an issue of vertical segregation. And then horizontal segregation, again, relates to the fact that um, you have women or men overrepresented in particular segments of the profession. So in particular instrument, instrument groups, I um, alluded to that already. But also, again, women tend to be overrepresented in teaching, which isn't considered um, such a prestigious endeavor unless it at unless it's at conservatoires. Um, so being a soloist is ranks highest, and then you have orchestral players and so on. And if you are just an in inverted commas, a music teacher, um, it's not considered as a very as the most prestigious endeavor, let's put it that way. Then you also have a gender pay gap in the classical music world. Um, and you also, in relation to gender, have issues around um, how female musicians negotiate their sexuality, their femininity, and appearance. So I often heard in the interviews that it's it's, it can be advantageous, um, they said, to be a pretty young woman because you might get jobs or you might be put in front of the orchestra so that the audience has something to look at, which itself is objectifying, I think, and sexist. Um, but then um, female players also said, but you have to be really careful because you don't want people to think that you only got into a certain position because you slept your way to the top. That's the expression they use. Um, so even though it's sometimes portrayed as an advantage that if you are a young, pretty woman, you can get certain roles. Um, it really actually often works to women's disadvantage. Um, and this also ties into issues around sexual harassment, uh, which have been, of course, in the news a lot lately. Um, there has also been a report since I published the book on how frequent sexual harassment is in the classical music world, and the figures are quite um, sobering. Um, so those are some of the issues in relation to inequalities. Um, and in relation to ethnicity and class, I also talk about that in the book. Um, so ethnicity, uh, different from gender, we have very low representation of um 
people, musicians from a black and minority ethnic background at conservatoires. Uh, the figures, again, that I cite in the book are quite sobering. And in relation to class, um, what's really interesting is to look not only um, at uh, the expense of uh, that is involved in learning a classical instrument. Often you have to take lessons from an early age onwards and pay for a tuition, um, and then you have to pay for music college and so on. Um, but it's uh, more broadly to look really at the middle class culture that characterizes the classical music world. And I really have to say here that this this take on class inequalities in classical music is very much informed by Anna Bull's work. Um, I know you are familiar with her work, Dave, um, who's done really excellent research on class and classical music and hopefully you'll hear more about this on this podcast <laughs> um, but I want to really acknowledge and reference her here because my research was very uh, heavily informed by her take on this yeah I mean I know she's working on a book which uh, hopefully will be uh, be the subject of a, of a future episode um it's really interesting that you've laid out I guess you know the kind of structures of the of the profession there around the kind of um, classic sociological um, demographic dividing lines. But how has this stuff lived? Because one of the things that struck me uh, when you got into the interview data was the way that um, class, race and gender inequalities, you know, we're, we're all kind of interview subjects, we're all topics for discussion. But class and race had a very different kind of, I guess, set of discourses or set of repertoires as compared to gender. So I wonder if you could tell the story of, of how these inequalities were um, were lived through uh, the discussions with the interviewees. Yeah. So um, I should perhaps say that I conducted over 60 interviews with young female musicians who were based in London and Berlin. So that was, this was one of the main, um, yeah, this was the main data that I drew on for this book. Um, and in the interviews, I would ask them, them, so what does it feel like to um, work in the profession as a, a young woman or as a woman, as a female musician? And a lot of the times the research participants said, oh, yeah, it's all fine. You know, there are no issues around inequalities. Or actually, I feel advantaged as a woman. It's better to be a woman than a man in the profession. And then, however, a few interviewees um, um, said, oh, it's terrible. It's really sexist. Look at all these inequalities, you know, the inequalities I just discussed. Um, and based on this, I should also briefly mention this before I move on. Um, I actually thought um, I should look up some numbers um, and found that there wasn't much statistical data at all on representation of women, um, ethnic minorities in the classical music world. So I collected some of this data in relation to orchestras and conservatoires. Um, but more to the point, to get back to your question, what really struck me then was that a lot of the research participants, and they were all women, um, stated that gender really wasn't an issue. And that differed um, in relation to class. When I asked them about class issues, class inequalities were more openly discussed. So classical music as a kind of elitist high art field uh, was something that the research participants um, acknowledged in the interviews. Um, and in relation to racial inequalities, it was a bit more mixed. So some research participants did say that um, the classical music profession was still um, predominantly white. 
And so they talked about the exclusion of musicians from a black and minority ethnic background. Um, but at the same time, they, for example, did not acknowledge white privilege, their own white privilege. And some research participants who themselves were from a minority ethnic background um, also disavowed race, racial inequality. So they said, oh, no, it's not an issue, really. So quite similar to the disavowal of gender inequalities. And the part, yeah, I'm sorry. No, so I was just going to say, like, gender is kind of fascinatingly sort of uh, disavowed and affirmed all, all at once, isn't it? And and you kind of you, you draw out this sense of um, a post-feminist moment to explain this. Yes, yeah. So I mean, what I found in uh, the interview data, it's really quite amazing how creative we are. Um, and how discourse allows us to disavow inequalities in all sorts of ways. <laughs> so such participants will trivialize them by saying, yeah, a bit of sexist banter, you know, I don't care. Even if they tell sexist jokes all the time, I don't care. Or I don't care if they ask me to play at a gig just because I'm pretty and young. So they would trivialize inequalities or they would... Um, say they don't exist or they would say, well, they do exist, but I've never experienced them. So they would be individualized. Um, but, and, and I argue that this ties into a wider post-feminist sensibility, whether interview positions, uh, interview participants portrayed themselves as these empowered, strong women. So they kind of knew that gender might be an issue simply by saying it's not an issue. You still acknowledge that it could be an issue. But then they disavowed um, the importance of gender at the same time by, for example, saying, oh, but it's never, you know, um, affected me personally. Or by saying, well, you just have to work your way around it. Or by saying, actually, it's an advantage to be a woman because, hey, why does it matter if you are hired because of your looks? At least you can. At least you get a job, you know. So I do quite um, heavily draw on post-feminist theories there to make sense of these discourses. And having said that, what I'd really love to do at the moment, given you know all the developments of the last six to nine months or so, the Me Too movement and all that. Um, I would love to re-interview some of these research participants and see whether their attitudes have changed because inequalities in the cultural sector have come so much more on the agenda since I conducted the interviews in 2012, 2013. I'm not sure whether that's possible, but I'd love to see whether these discourses have changed since then. I mean, if, if one was to speculate, there's um, the sense that part of these post-feminist sensibilities are linked to entrepreneurialism and the sense of kind of, you know, um, the entrepreneurial self using these post-feminist sensibilities as part of, of how they were living the inequalities of the profession. And I guess now mm -hmm. you might see a much more post-feminist post sensibility, yeah. you know, a kind of foregrounding of Me Too, of Time's Up, because that would fit in with the kind of the appropriate um, behavior for an entrepreneurial self in, in classical. Mm, yeah, yeah, that would be really interesting. Yeah, and at the same time, I think it would still be, I mean, I can only speculate here, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was still equally as individualist, you know, um, in terms of saying, yeah, you know, all these inequalities exist, but um, you just have to personally make sure that you don't get sexually harassed and all that. Um, I could imagine that that might be one dominant discourse but we'd have to see it would be really interesting to do that this um you kind of mentioned the i word I, i'm really interested in uh the sense actually of individualization so you've already gestured towards how uh say gender inequality is 
um, narrated on an individual level as, as you say, you know, sexist banter, or maybe you can, you know, use it to your own advantage and stuff like this. And, and I guess it'd be interesting to think through the idea of kind of structures being individualized and internalized, particularly again, to come back to this sense of a profession that's almost meant to be above that, that kind of thing. Yes, yeah. So I found that processes of individualization were quite um, strong um, in the data, like I said, in relation to how inequalities were negotiated or talked about, but also in relation to, for example, how uh, the precarious nature of the work in the classical music profession, how that was negotiated. So um, again, similar to lots of other work in cultural industries, uh, work in classical music is often based on freelance work. It's very um, short term, um, a lot of uh, based on networking, word of mouth, a lot of income insecurity, low pay. Um, also, we should um, mention that a lot of musicians actually um are injured or get injured um, from playing their musical instruments um, for too long, too much over a long period of time. And that means sometimes that they can't play for several months, um, which means they don't have an income then, although there are, there are funds you can apply for, but still. Um, so you can actually get injured from your work there. Um, I realize that this is different from exploitation and other work sectors, but I still think it's worth pointing out. And yet, uh, what I often found in the interviews is, again, that this precarious nature of the profession was often individualized, so that A, musicians felt that they didn't really want to talk about the difficulties of this precarious work with their colleagues because they didn't want to be perceived of as whinging or as not quite making it. They feared that it would affect negatively their reputation as a musician if they were seen to be struggling. You kind of had to put a positive attitude on instead and um, to make sure that there was the appropriate level of buzz around you, I guess, to be hired again for future gigs or concerts or performances. Um, but also then what happened is that the musicians again kind of adopted this uh, entrepreneurial attitude to dealing with um, financial insecurity, for example, by saying, yeah, they just try to plan meticulously um, what they spend and save if they have an income. Or they said, yeah, with injuries, you just have to really take good care of the self. So if you get injured, it's your own problem. It's not an outcome of... Um, and rehearsals that are too long or that take place in cold rooms where it's more likely to get injured um, but you have to take appropriate care of yourself it's a matter of uh, having the right technique rather than a matter of working conditions so to sum up I really felt that this uh, yeah threat of individualism or processes of individualization were quite um, dominant in the data I wonder what can we do about this um one of the things the book uh, does in, in the conclusion um, is address this question of, of how to deal with these issues. And I suppose, you know, when we outline these structural uh, critiques, it can seem as if um, we're presenting a sense of, but this is how the world works, you know, and almost full stop. So um, I'm interested to, to know, uh, I guess, kind of how we address um, these kinds of, of issues, both, you know, in terms of the subjectivity and the structures 
uh, in which that subjectivity is located. Yes, um, I agree with you. And um, that's why the book kind of ends on this note. Well, what can we do? Because I didn't want to just um, portray too negative and um, <laughs> pessimistic of a picture. So one of the things I think in relation to subjectivity um, is to put these issues on the agenda and to talk about them. And as we just said, you know, things may well have changed, especially over the last six to nine months. And that's not to say that I'm entirely uncritical of Me Too and Time's Up and all that. I think there's lots of work to be done to see really what the uh, political potential is of these movements. Um, but I do think that inequalities really have come on the agenda more in the last um, few months, but also last couple of years than there were in 2012-13 when I conducted the interviews. And I think that makes a difference um, simply in terms of if we can speak about inequalities, we can see what they are. Uh, we can also, through that, perhaps challenge some of these uh, um, uh, trends around putting too much emphasis on the individual um, because it allows people really to see that there are social or structural forces at work um, that have an impact on how we feel, on how we live um, our work life. So that would be one thing. Um, the second thing I think we can do that is much more practical in terms of addressing these inequalities in particular is to um, collect data um, um, I said that I started doing this um, and it was a really interesting experience. I'm, I'm a trained qualitative researcher. Um, and then, as I've told you, I realized that there wasn't any data on representation in the classical music profession in terms of gender, ethnic minorities, class. So I collected some of this data and suddenly I was invited to speak on the radio, for example, because I had these magical numbers. I could say 1.3%, whatever, you know, um, and it was really eye opening to see um, that. Um, but I think it is useful, actually, because collecting data allows us to a know what you know what is there or who is there and who is not there um, but it also allows us to track change long-term short-term and I think one thing we should encourage institutions orchestras and so on to do in the sector and more widely is to collect this data on a regular basis and to collect it voluntarily and I think that could be done quite well and the last thing I say is that uh, inequalities are a structural issue and they therefore require structural solutions so why I while I welcome initiatives such as mentoring and workshops for women, female conductors, for example, I think something wider also has to be done. So I do recommend quotas where they are feasible. I also recommend blind auditions where they are feasible in more institutionalized settings such as conservatoires. Um, I think that could make a real difference too. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, you know... Um exactly the the kinds of both interventions and and you know kind of critical thought that that we need i th i think you know there's so much we could have talked about in the book there's so much going on in there but i think we should probably conclude actually with uh with place if i was going to be you know even vaguely critical of i guess what is my own field um sometimes th there is a disconnection actually between you know really great work that is thinking structurally and then actually, you know, the kind of places uh, that, that 
um, these um, structures are, are sort of, you know, are lived, are, are taking place. And the very end of the book has this really lovely discussion uh, of London and Berlin and, you know, the kind of, what what do you say, the, you know, the sort of structures of feeling around, around the places. And rather than, I guess, ask you, you know, to kind of say, you know, tell me about London and Berlin, I, I'm just interested in kind of like why you, you had that sort of place-based uh, context and, and and where that kind of figured uh in in your thought behind the book because i thought it was both you know kind of uh academically sort of important but also was was a really um uh, a really nice way to to bring the book towards a conclusion yes um it's a really good question so um during my phd i lived in london but then i also lived in berlin and that was in 2007 2008 when things were still really cheap there <laughs> I absolutely loved it. You know, I had my own um, flat there paying half the rent I would pay for a room in a flat share in London. Um, and that made me really aware of the differences between London and Berlin on top of paying, you know, really not that much for food and being able to afford going out and all that. Um, so that was partly the reason why I then picked London and Berlin as the kind of uh, low-key uh, locations for the study, um, apart from the fact that both cities have been described as creative cities and have a vibrant cultural sector and so on. Um, and yeah, I was, like you say, I was interested in the structures of feeling because that really resonated with my own experience, I guess. I remember coming, moving back to London after this lovely year in Berlin and really feeling like, oh my God, it's impossible to live here on the small income of a, you know, on a PhD scholarship, which I fortunately yep. had. Um, yeah. And, and feeling but even if I get a job how am I going to manage and all that um, um, so I think perhaps you you recognize there's something in the way I wrote the chapter that it resonated with my own experiences I guess uh, the musicians did describe London as exciting and full of buzz and I totally you know I love living in London um, but they also said how hard it was how it was how they were always on the brink of unaffordability and again I recognize that you know and I have to say that I'm uh, positioned in still in a very privileged position I have a permanent job um, I um, you know I'm from a middle class background I'm white um, but still I, I recognize these discourses so there was something personal in there as well yeah I mean as I say it was um, it was a really great way to uh, to set up you know the kind of um, oh more hopeful or you know more kind of practical conclusions that the book has but also yeah i think you know you're right that kind of sense of a uh, of a personal moment um that, that finishes the book off i wonder actually are you are you going to do more kind of around you know spatial questions you know are you gestured towards you know maybe revisiting classical music or actually have you sort of settled accounts with with creative cultural work and are, are going on to something completely different? No, I don't think I've set accounts with creative cultural work. Um, I think I have been asked recently to, to do something similar on the jazz sector in the UK because that's even, you know, inequalities there apparently are even more pronounced and yet we know even less about that. Oh, yes. So yep. That might be interesting. That would be a fairly small project, so definitely not a book-length project, but something I might be interested in. Um, and and otherwise, I think I'd be interested in applying the insights that we've gained from, you know, this excellent field, I think, quite vibrant field of studies on cultural work to spheres of digital work, digital activism um, and contemporary feminist activism. So I guess I'd like to merge my two previous fields of studies into something around subjectivity, digital online activism 
and uh, drawing on theories of cultural work to make sense of that. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Christine Shah about gender, subjectivity and cultural work, the classical music profession.